I'm Jay Horton. I make movies that make money. This is how. Jay, why do you say you are a filmmaker who makes money? <laughs> um, well, I am making a very like specific style of movie. I'm making low budget features, you know, usually under $100,000. And the vast majority of filmmakers that I talk to that are making movies at this level, a lot of them aren't making money. You know, they're losing from the distributors or, you know, they're self-distributing and not doing anything. Um, they don't know how to make money. I myself, you know, I've, I've directed 25 feature films at this point. And, you know, the first probably 10 years of my career, like I wasn't making a lot of money on these movies. Like I, I, I didn't know how. I didn't know how to navigate it. Um, I, I kind of learned how uh, later on. And, you know, I like to make it so that other filmmakers can maybe get to that point sooner than I did. And so I like to share some of that knowledge with them. You know, it took it, it took me a long time uh, before my, you know, my movies were breaking even or making money. And so and, and on top of that, as I was starting my YouTube channel, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, there was a couple of growth experts that I'm following and they have their little catchphrases. So I was like, oh, I need some kind of catchphrase. And it just like that just came out. I, I was getting ready to do it. And I was like, I'm Jay Horton. I make movies that make money. This is how, you know, and it just it just felt like something that would interest other filmmakers, which was, you know, the whole goal of the channel in the first place. Right. You do that in your intro to mm -hmm. the videos. Yeah, it does work. When did you become the filmmaker who makes money? <laughs> um, uh, so I've made money with my films from the beginning. You know, I did I did struggle at the beginning. But, you know, pretty much, I mean, my, my first movie was distributed in 2003 uh, by York Entertainment. Now, it didn't make anything, but from that and it getting distributed and out there, um, I started landing other filmmaking jobs. And that's where I first started to make money. But like when I say, you know, I'm Jay Horton, I'm a I'm, I make movies that make money. I mean, I produce movies, I direct movies and I make money off those movies. Like I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, hey, I got I get hired as a editor or a DP, which I have done, but you know, I, I'm specifically talking about making money off the exhibition of the movies, and I would say that started probably like on a steady about five years ago, about five years when like right around the time that Amazon started opening up for streaming. You know, and that's where I first started getting the rights back from some of my older films and finding that you actually could make a little bit of money on your own. And over the years, I've just gotten better and better at marketing them, at picking the movies and, you know, making more money with them. Do you think that was a big contributor is going back and getting those rights back or new movies going forward once Amazon Prime opened up? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. I mean, it was the the old movies uh, coming back up for license that made me realize that I could be a like an entrepreneurial producer. You know, I had um, uh, Rise of the Undead and Edges of Darkness. They were released in 2003 and 2008. Um, around 2014 or 15, I got the rights back for both of those within like a year. And I honestly, at the time, I didn't know what to do with them. And uh, there was a, 
a service called Create Space. Um, it's owned by Amazon, but it was basically created for self-publishers, like uh, authors. Um, but they were doing a thing where you could give them like your ISO video file from your movie for DVD, and they would make videos on demand, yeah, or DVDs on demand. And real soon after that, they started giving you the option to go onto Amazon Prime. And so this was before Prime Video Direct, but it's still basically a similar process. Like you'd upload yourself and get it up. So I put these two movies up on Amazon Prime and they were making a few bucks a month, like, like nothing big. And then out of nowhere, uh, one of them popped up to like a thousand a month. And then it kind of hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, like what if this was a new movie? You know, cause this is like a 10 year old title at this point. And it's, it's doing all right. Um, so then I started seriously considering, you know, producing movies and like, hey, here's somewhere where I could put them even if I didn't do traditional distribution. And so I, you know, it was always in the back of my mind. And then after um, I had a little uh, sidetrack with Gas Money Pictures where I was doing uh, animation, animation studio. And that took me off movies for about two years. But then when I came back, um, I was like, hey, I'm going to do this like self-produce, you know, self-distribute thing. And I just started making documentaries. And that's that's where I really got immersed in like the streaming and Amazon and then later Film Hub and then back into traditional distribution. Was that the point of no return when you saw that email or whatever with the thousand dollars? Yes. Yes. Because like from from that point on, I realized that, hey, I can self-generate material. I can make these movies on my own without answering to anyone and I can make a, you know, a reasonable amount of money on it. You know, if I made a thousand on this older one, could I make five thousand or ten thousand with a newer one? So it was like, hey, I, and I don't I don't need anybody to do this. There's no gatekeeping. It's like it's almost anyone could put a movie up there. So, yeah, it really, really opened up the the doors to me being my own boss. And with this $1,000 in one month, were there rumblings online? Did you see more? Was this a complete surprise? Complete surprise. So I was doing absolutely no promotion for it. Like, you know, no, no social media. It had no social media presence. You know, the, like I said, the movie was 10 years old. I had pretty much written them off at that point. It was totally just a fluke of the algorithm. You know, it was on Amazon and a certain group of people started watching it and it just it just took off you know it got a bunch of reviews after that and still not a ton like you'll hear people talking about how critical user reviews on amazon are but I, i've never really found that to be true i don't think it hurts but i have plenty of movies that have made you know five thousand a month ten thousand a month and they have you know less than 200 reviews so i never thought that was a big thing but yeah, it just, it really opened up from that point on, I was just like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And I've always had kind of a problem working for people. I just, I, you know, I always wanted to be my own boss. So here, here it was, I can do it. Did you quit a job after that or you were freelance? So I was freelancing around this time. I was freelancing a lot. So I was primarily making my living as an editor. Uh, I worked for Fox cutting promos for a while. I would cut other people's features. Um, I was hired to direct other people's features. Like I directed about 10 feature films for a company called AMG Film Partners. And you know, they were all between 25 and $50,000. Um, after I saw the self-distribution thing, and it took a few years 
Now, you know, because I started making the docs and, you know, I'd do one here, one there. It took about a year before, like, my money was steady enough to where I say, hey, I don't have to do freelance anymore. And I did. So I haven't done a freelance job in probably three years now. Um, well, I, I directed one documentary last year that was a for hire, but it was based off my, you know, the stuff I'm doing now. What's the one thing you wish someone had had a heart to heart talk with you and said, this is what's going to happen and this is where it's going to be hard. And you learned it on your own and... I, I wish that someone had set me down and been more um, like realistic in your expectations of what your career is going to be, you know, or what it takes to make a living as a filmmaker. So when I was starting out, I had the same, you know, the same vision that most filmmakers do. Like, you know, I'm going to make this low budget movie and I'm going to put it in film festivals and it's going to get discovered and some big distributor is going to pick it up and it's just going to it's going to take off. And I'm going to be Spike Lee or I'm going to be Quentin Tarantino or I'm going to be Robert Rodriguez. And, and that's what it takes to be able to make a living doing movies. But but it, it's it's not so, you know, there's a whole like sub level of working class filmmakers that are making movies that a lot of people would consider backyard movies. Movies shot for $10,000 or $20,000 or $30,000. And there are people out there that are making these movies and can make livings off of them. You know, you might not be rich. I'm not on red carpets and, you know, I'm not getting Oscars and awards and all of that. But I'm doing what I love to do and I'm making a living at it. And to be really honest, and a lot of people will say that I'm, uh, you know, I'm um, rationalizing it um, because I'm not at the higher level. But honestly, at this point in my career, like I don't want to be much higher. I mean, don't get me wrong. If, you know, if I, you know, stumbled on a $500,000 budget as opposed to a 50, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. But as far as like directing, you know, like studio films or tentpole stuff, I, I have absolutely no desire to do that any anymore. You know, I, I did when I started, but not now. But I really wish somebody had made it known to me that like you don't necessarily have to be Quentin Tarantino to make a living making movies. It's interesting how people's desires for success change. And maybe you get tastes of it here and you realize, you know what, this is a lot of stress over here. I kind of like this realm where I'm doing my own thing, I'm still accountable, but I don't have to be, you know, th th there's a price to pay, I think, for certain levels of a career. Yeah, yeah, totally. And one thing that's always uh, been a, not a problem, but a, you know, a source of anxiety for me, especially when I have outside investors, like, you know, I feel, you know, a, you know, a moral and, you know, and of course, a you know, legal responsibility to, to return the money. And when you're making movies for $50,000 or $60,000 or $20,000, most of the people that are investing in those movies are not super rich people, you know, because like real, like, you know, rich, you know, experienced investors, they're not going to invest in a $60,000 movie. You know, and not because it can't be profitable, but because, you know, there's a ceiling to how profitable it can be, you know, like, yes, sky's the limit, but, you know, it's outliers, you know, for the most part, if you do 100 movies at 50,000, the, the most one of those is going to make in a year, 
in general terms is you know like maybe a couple hundred thousand and that's like at the tippity top so for a you know a, a regular investor somebody that you know invests millions of dollars or you know they have big they're that's just not an exciting investment they're like what well, i'm going to put 60,000 and you know 2 years later i'm going to get 150% back or you know maybe 200 it's just not you know so it's so the people that are investing in these movies are usually you know people like myself you know that you know we're we're making modest livings we have a good year we might have 10 or 15 that we can throw towards something and we do you know and but so then as a filmmaker when you get that money you have all this you, you want to be able to return it you know, one of my movies I produced back in 2010, and it was, a, I think, a $35,000 budget. And one of the producers who I'd worked with for years, um, he had, it's finally our project to work together. And he had come into some like family money, a family member had passed or something like that. So he had a little bit of a nest egg. And, you know, he ended up putting like $15,000 into that movie. So the, eventually the movie made its money back, but it took a long time. And, and I felt that every day until that money was returned. That, that's just how I, like, like me as a filmmaker, I can't take money and then not return it and feel okay. You know, I, and I'm still, my, my last narrative film, which I know my tagline is, I make movies that make money, but my last narrative film, The Campus uh, Death Day, it was a financial failure. It didn't make its budget back. And there was, you know, quite a few, like two and $3,000 investors in that, that you know, they could really use that money and it never made it. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll always feel bad about that. Was there a moment, Jay, when the Hollywood dream was no more? You, you just wanted to be a working class filmmaker or middle class filmmaker? I would say I would say it pro like maybe around five years ago, it started to occur to me that, hey, you know, maybe like I'm not going to be directing million dollar movies. You know, but but I still I still kind of held on to it. You know, it was still like that like that's the goal. But somewhere in the last like two years, like moving out to Georgia and doing the documentaries full time, and, and and honestly doing my my YouTube channel, like I just I just realized that you know I don't I really don't even desire that anymore. I like I don't desire the red carpet stuff anymore, or you know the adulation of millions. Or, you know whatever it is it's just it really became about the work and what i think what really changed for me for the better and i recommend this for like all filmmakers when when you stop making movies a hundred percent for yourself and start making them for others is when things change you know or at least it did for me when i stopped thinking about my little precious passion project and i start thinking about like, you know, with the documentaries, for example, I'm making a dog rescue documentary and I'm bringing awareness to, you know, this issue and this, this, this small little dog rescue that might be struggling. Like, that's what making that movie was about, you know? And then a byproduct of that, y it can be financially successful, you know? Or, or even, you know, I'm getting ready to do uh, a horror movie, Craving, my first narrative in a few years. And, but totally, this isn't just like, hey, this is my script that I wanted to make. You know, the whole time I'm like, what is the subgenre? What is the audience expecting from the subgenre? What can I give them to make this better? You know, and, and I think that that leads to, you know, more practical success. You had been in L.A. how many years? Fifteen. Fifteen. So you came here from Georgia? 
Um, now? Uh, the, when you came out here to okay. LA? So originally I was from Indiana. I grew up in Indiana um, and it didn't really seem like, uh, you know, I was really into movies. Like I was a small kid. I, you know, didn't really play sports. I just watched movies. So, but there was no, like it didn't seem like that was a real thing that you could do. You know, like I was shooting little videos and stuff, but it never crossed my mind, you know, before I moved out of Indiana that movies are something that I could do and make some money at. You know, it's like you had to be in Los Angeles or New York or and you had to be, you know, just famous and discovered. And uh, I moved from Indiana to Louisiana. I worked offshore for about a year and a half, saved some money for college and then decided I was going to go to school. And the University of New Orleans had a pretty good film program. And so I went there, uh, studied communications and film. And this was right around the time that Panasonic released their DVX uh, 100, the 24P mini DV camera. Yeah. And uh, it, all of a sudden, and, and like, uh, what is it, 28 days later it had come out. And I was like, oh, it's like it's suddenly feasible to like shoot a feature film. And it, so I started thinking more about it as like a practical career. And that right after I graduated college that summer, you know, we pulled together a few thousand dollars and that's when we shot Rise of the Undead, which was my first movie. Jay, we had this comment come in on our YouTube channel the other day and I wanted to read it for you and please, you're welcome to jump in at any time. It goes, I made my first and only 16 millimeter feature film in 1997 that cost me around $50,000 that I paid for out of my own pocket, used credit cards and borrowed money from my parents. However, unlike Rodriguez and Smith, my film was a complete and total failure. I wasn't accepted into any film festivals and wasn't able to get any sort of distribution. This cost me financially, including my future in having a career as a filmmaker, and 25 years later, I'm still dealing with the debt and financial instability from it. Mm. 50000 is a lot of money for most people, let alone $5 million for a film. The reality for myself, and I know there are other aspiring filmmakers who've gone down the same path like I did, that you only have got one shot. And if you fail both financially and commercially, no one is going to invest in you or another film because why would they? Mm. No one invests in failed filmmakers. So like, here's what I'll say to that. I, and I don't, like I know where he's coming from, but he's sure. also coming from a completely like a different time. 97, shooting on film. Yes, that probably did cost a minimum of 50 grand to get something in the can. But um, today, it, it doesn't. Like it doesn't cost that much to make. It doesn't have to cost that much to make a feature film. And it, when, when we set ourselves up that, hey, I got one shot and it's this and it's over, like it almost is never gonna work out. In, in my experience, like filmmaking is a numbers game. You know, the people that, that, you know, break out, like get discovered and like take off on their first films, the Rodriguez's and the Tarantino's and Spike Lee and all of them, they're lottery winners. Like, like that, that is not the norm. Most filmmakers that I know, I know very few that did well in their first movie. Like almost, almost none. I, like I can't, I can't name any. I didn't. Actually, on the movies that I produced, it took me maybe four films before I was making like a profit, you know. But again, I wasn't spending fifty thousand dollars. Today, you know, you just you just got to 
you know, set a smaller scale for what you're shooting, but you, you can shoot a feature film for $20,000. You can shoot a feature film for $10,000, you know, if you're smart. You know, if you, you pull in favors, you have gear, you can, you can do these things. We have our, we have, I have a phone in my pocket that has a better camera on it than the cinema cameras that I did my first like two or three movies on, you know? So today I, I just, I think that that, I think that one of the biggest problems with indie filmmakers, is they're still looking at the filmmaking landscape like it was 97, like it was 2005 and it's not, it's a completely different time. You know, there, there has never been a, a, a point in history where it's so easy to make movies. It can be so cheap to make movies and it's easy to get them out there, like on professional platforms. You know, now, you know, on the downside of that is everybody can make movies and there's a lot of content and we can get into that later. But I, I, I don't think it's an all or nothing. It should never be an all or nothing. Like I'm all in on this and that's it um, for, for me. You know, I'm, if that's the path someone chooses to take, you know, more power to them. But I personally think it's a numbers thing. If you make five movies, two are going to fail. You know, one or two are going to break even. And that fifth one is going to make enough to cover the other four, you know. Excellent. And, and there's more of, of yeah. this comment. And, you know, I appreciate this person for being candid enough to. Oh, to, totally. To, totally. And I, I think you do, too. And, um, and I feel like this is a probably, unfortunately, a common story. And I've heard from people that have spent actually double that. Oh, yeah. For and their more. first film. And yeah. And we're in debt. And so, yeah, it's um, I appreciate them for, for leaving this. Um, the fact is movies cost money and they're a team effort and no one working on a film should work for free. Even though you can now shoot a movie on an iPhone, the fact is not everyone can afford an iPhone. People like this guy, and the commenter is referring to someone we're interviewing, like to talk about how easy it is nowadays and use what you have access to, but not everyone has access to the things people take for granted. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't have the money to make another film. Heck, I wouldn't even edit anything on my 15-year-old computer, which I'm still using because I can't afford anything newer. People with money or access to money have no idea what it's like when you're living paycheck to paycheck, which is most filmmakers these days who are not already established. So I, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of empathy uh, for that statement. And I, I do, and I also, with everything I just said, I, you know, I want to, you know, make known that I, I do realize my, my privilege. You know, I, I, I did not come for money. You know, I, we, we come from minimum wage, you know, I, I've paid for everything myself, but I'm a healthy white male. I, I've, I've had a fairly easy go of it comparatively. Um, but th that said, I, I, you know, when I made my first movie, um, you know, uh, this was 2003 uh, that we shot it, summer of 2003. And I was working at Starbucks um, you know, so I was making, I don't know, five minimum wage, whatever it was, and some tips. I worked 35 hours a week and I was paying for college. You know, um, I was still able, like in that situation, to save a little bit of money myself and get a little bit on a credit card. And, you know, I think that first movie we made for about $4,000, you know, and it was me and a couple other friends and we kind of came together on it and put it together. And I know there are people that are in a position where, you know, they can't even like do that. 
you know, they're, you know, you know, people that start families early, um, you know, or uh, somebody that's disabled or somebody that has, you know, other responsibilities. I was a young, single, white guy, and I didn't, you know, I, I had nothing to do but save up my money and pay for my college, you know. So, but all that said, it doesn't take that. I think people set up roadblocks for themselves when it comes to making movies because, you know, it's a scary thing. And I think sometimes people, it's easier just to say, hey, like it's too hard, I'm not gonna do it, than to like buckle down and do it, you know? And I, like I, I, I buckled down, you know? And then, and after that movie, and that movie didn't make much money, and I was still broke, and I was driving a 91 Ford Explorer, and Katrina happened, and I loaded up my Explorer and with what I had left, and I drove cross country to LA, and you know, I surfed on a friend's couch for about six months and I couldn't get a job. I started working at Starbucks again. And I, the entire, I worked at Starbucks through my first one, two, three, four, my first five movies. You know, so like I, I, would, I would work, I would save up a little bit of money, I would shoot and then I'd save up a little bit more money and I would shoot again. You know, I would, I would be working a, you know, doing a shoot and we'd finish at, you know, three or four in the morning. And then about six in the morning, I'd be at Starbucks, you know, you want foam on your latte, you know, but, <laughs> but like, those are the kind of things that if you, if you want to do it, if you are healthy and you don't have, you know, you know, four kids, you can make it work if you choose to make it work. I, I, I believe in general. And so you were living in Louisiana at the time that you were you were paying for college, mm -hmm. working at Starbucks there. Yes. And you, you managed to do that. And then once Katrina hit, you moved here, you drove. Mm -hmm. And would you ever run into people that you were working with on set while you were at Starbucks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so like, yeah. So I, I would be, I remember I was on uh, my first movie and uh, the the first weekend we shot, we had a really big day. It was kind of a, a apocalyptic zombie movie. So we had this sequence set up in a self-storage facility and we had like, oh man, something like 40 extras. I mean, it looked big, you know, and, and we were all in college. So, you know, we had a lot of college friends come and help. So we had a fairly like impressive looking crew and there was all these people here. It looked like a big deal. You know, and then um, and one of the one of the zombies, you know, I, I was talking to and then you know, like the next day, um, you know, I'm, and I say nothing about working at Starbucks like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a big time filmmaker. And then, you know, the very next day they right in the drive through and they kind of looked, they did a double take and they didn't say <laughs> nothing. But it 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 was. Yeah. Yeah. And I had that happen many times. Sure. Sure. And that was in Louisiana or here? That in was in Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. Right. In in LA, it honestly, I can't think of a situation where it happened because I, you know, when I when I moved to LA, I was working at Starbucks in downtown Burbank, and you know, I was shooting in you know Hawthorne or Hollywood, and I just I just didn't I I don't remember running to anybody there, but I, I may have. Been there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, you have a video that you did maybe a year or so ago entitled Top Five Reasons Your Indie Film is Failing. Yeah. And so we took the liberty of writing down your excellent tips and we were hoping to have you read them. Maybe we could start with five first. Okay. Yeah. So five reasons your indie film is failing. Number five, 
you are pushing your movie in all the wrong places. Um, so this is what I'm talking about here is when you have, you know, a certain genre of film, like you need to specifically find that audience. Right. And I find a lot of people, what I, what I see over and over, like when I wrote this comment, I was specifically thinking about filmmakers that were promoting their movies and filmmaking groups. Cause like, you'll see this all the time. Like you have all these filmmaking groups and they're like, Hey, go check out my movie to all the other filmmakers. And the filmmakers aren't necessarily your target audience. If your movie is about filmmaking, maybe that's right. But for the most part, like, no, that's the, don't, promote there you know like that's not filmmakers are not going to drive that the viewership you know um or you know you know people shotgun out their promotion so you know they're like let's let's do the exact same post on facebook has on twitter has on instagram has on linkedin and all of these social media platforms are very different in the type of material that gets traction you know so like for example, you know, like on the documentaries, um, I, like I do very well promoting on Facebook in Facebook groups that are specific to that subject matter um, and on uh, Twitter, like Twitter with hashtags that are targeted towards that target audience. But like, you know, LinkedIn kind of OK for documentaries, but not so much. But like you, you should concentrate on what you're comfortable with. You know, like, for example, I've spent the most time on Facebook. So, like, I'm pretty good at writing a post that's going to engage people on Facebook. So that's where I concentrate a lot of my promotion, you know, and, you know, like, like I'm not as good at Twitter. So I don't concentrate on Twitter as much. I'll put posts there, but I don't spend an overt amount of time on it. But um, and I don't uh, like or I discovered uh, Pinterest. A lot of people say, like, Pinterest is you know, the, a waste of time, but like I've gotten a lot of really good video views there, you know? So I find just, you know, keep your, keep your promotion, you know, targeted to the right audience, you know, is number five. What about a subreddit? Let's suppose your documentary is on something that's medical related or whatever. If there was a subreddit on that, so, on that? yeah, what, what I've found with Reddit, so I do do a little promotion on Reddit, but I, I find in general, uh, Reddit's not great for direct promotion. Like you have to be really sly with your promotion on Reddit because there are like some Facebook groups, there's rules, but like Facebook, it's, it's really easy to circumvent them. Like Reddit, I, you know, I've had, I've been banned from many threads, you know, for, you know, throwing a link in something. Like you have to engage with people on a more personal level there. And by doing that, sometimes you can gain, get some interest in your stuff, but just like direct promotion, I, I've not had much luck. Sure. There's too many people that are yeah. ready to come at you. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Number four. Number four, you've picked too broad of, you've picked too broad of a genre. So this is like, like, you know, I'm making a horror movie. Right. And like, that's it. That's your genre. That's who you're targeting. Horror is a super broad. I'm not saying don't do a horror movie, but I'm saying there are subgenres of horror. So what is your subgenre? Are you a monster movie or is it a siege movie? Is it a combination of the two? You know, what I'm finding recently uh, is that, you know, amalgamations and, you know, combining subgenres is really cool. You know, so like, you know, the movie I'm getting ready to do, it's a monster movie, but it's also a siege picture. 
you know, it has a little bit of a crime element to it and, you know, pinching those together. But when people are just like, I'm making a drama, where do you promote a drama? You know, where, where do you promote a general drama movie? Now, what's that drama about? Is it about a small business owner? What type of business does that owner own? Is there a community around that kind of small business? Like, you don't necessarily have to, you know, create a project around your your marketing. Like, hey, I'm going to create this like double subgenre. No, you're making a, a drama movie, but you don't think of it in general terms. You think of it in specific terms. You know, what what what's the race of the people? Is this uh, is this people of color? Is it LGBTQ or is it just is it white folk? You know, and, and who are you marketing to from the beginning? So like I, I find narrowing that down really early on and knowing what your project is and how to get to those people is how you market successfully an indie film. Okay, let's suppose it's a mumblecore college film, um, early 20s relationship movie. Mm. So I would, the first... First thing I would do is look at, you know, is a, if they're straight or the sexual orientation, I would look at that. Um, I, you would be, you'd, if you're doing a drama movie these days, uh, my piece of advice is find an underserved market, not to exploit it, but to shine light on it to, you know, cause you know, one, one subgenre that's doing really well, like on Tubi these days is, um, you know, like a black based, uh, female focused, like romance with, you know, maybe a slight crime tinge to it. And like, you know, 10 years ago, those movies were flout. You couldn't, you couldn't make hardly anything on them. Now they're, they're doing really well because it's an underserved market, you know? So, or, you know, if your mumblecore thing, is it about, is the main character a musician? Um, let's just say they're a musician. So what type of music is it? Target those types of fans, you know, or if they're a baker, what kind of baker is it? What kind of cook or culinary skill? You know, f find, find things in the movie that are a strong enough element in the movie that you can market around it, like to garner interest because it's really the biggest mistake I see filmmakers making over and over with their marketing is they're, it's just, it's so general. I'm, I'm making, I just made this drama movie and here it is, here's my trailer. You have to give people a little bit more than that. You know, there has to be something that they can connect to that they're gonna have interest in that post to even engage with it, you know? Great point, that's very true. Okay, number three. Your overall marketing is ineffective. So um, I, I honestly don't remember exactly what I was saying with that one, but I think what I was getting at is uh, like you're, you're just being too like generic in your marketing. You're like, Here, like, here's my movie, check it out. You know, how many filmmakers do you see on social media? Here's my movie, check it out. Let me know what you think. Like who, who, who does that except for like your very like good friends or your mom who, who is going to comment on that, you know, un unless it's to just tear you down and, you know, uh, chastise you for making a generic post. Um, so that in general, I think people look at marketing, like they just don't understand 
that it's about engaging people, about getting their interest, about uh, intriguing them, asking a question. Like you, you'll see over and over on my posts, like I'll, I'll promote my YouTube channel a lot in filmmaking groups, but I always phrase all of my posts as a question. You know, if I do a video about, um, you know, how to, how to distribute an indie film, you know, my question will be, what are some of your experiences distributing your independent films? Here's mine, you know, and that will create engagement. Or if it's a, you know, say, say you're doing a, a comedy movie um, about a uh, about a startup, you know, and, and you go into startup into some startup groups, and you're like, what what are some what are some of the challenges that you had starting up like your startup, right? And you start getting some, and you don't even post about the movie, and you start getting some comments on that. And then within there, you start dropping in like, oh, I just, I, you know, I did this movie about it. Here it is, you know, and that is another way to gain some engagement in some of those groups. Sure. And then it turns out you made Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you make and you make you make friends this way. It's like networking. I mean, you know, going back to, uh, you know, like crowdfunding, like that's all about, you know, connecting with people. You know, it's not, everybody says it's, it's about asking for money. It's not about asking for money. It's about connecting with people and, and you are giving them something for their money, whether that's directly, you know, ROI worth it is, you know, a different story, but you know, you are, you are providing something that they want. Right. And with each update, you know, you get to root as a group for the project. Totally. Number two is my favorite. Um, you didn't think about the audience before making it. You made the film for you and not them. Yeah, this is my, this is like my, my mantra. This has become my mantra like over the last probably four years. Like I, when I started my career, I made movies that I wanted to make and absolutely no thought of, of where is this going to play? Who is the audience for it? Who's going to watch it? How much are they going to pay for it? Like what, what's it going to do? I'm just, I just want to make this because this is what I want to do. And I think a lot of filmmakers start with this mindset and I'm not, I'm not saying that this is like an evil mindset. I'm saying you, you have to balance it with a, with, with a marketing mind, like to, the, the days of, you know, a filmmaker, you know, like, uh, you know, Richard Linkletter, one of them coming in, doing a movie and just blowing up, like, I'm not saying it never happens, but it's happening less and less and less, you know? So like when we make a movie, we do got to think about who is, who is this for? Even at the very beginning, when you're writing the script, like, like, who is this for? What is the genre? What is the subgenre? What are elements within that genre that people are looking for? And, and I'm not talking about doing a like cookie cutter list and hitting all those points in your movie. Sometimes you subvert those expectations, but you have to be aware of it. You know, like wh what do they want? And if you don't give it to them, are they going to engage with your movie? You know, so from from the very, very beginning of any project now, like I'm one of my first thoughts is, who is the audience for this and where do I find them? Because if you have no clue, then you either need to go back to the drawing board or like reverse engineer, you know, your marketing early to, to figure it out. You know, if you're doing a horror movie, you know, you're doing a, a horror movie siege picture, you know, with, uh, with a Hispanic cast, you know, and you don't know where to find your audience, you need to start 
thinking about where to find your audience as soon as possible. Who do you think Slacker was for at that time? I think Slacker at that time was for 18, to, it was for Gen X, you know, young um, artists, you know, uh, I mean, I, like I wanted to be a filmmaker and I was into it, but there, there was just, there was, it, I think it really spoke to that generation, you know, and if, if I was doing something like that now, like Slacker, um, I would definitely be targeting, like I would target some filmmaking groups for that movie. You know, because because it is, but I would also be looking outside of that musicians, artists. You know, it had a there was a like one of them was a poet. It's been so long since I've sure. seen it, but you know, the different characters were in a lot of different you know up and coming, low income. You know, there wasn't a lot of rich characters in that. So like I would be looking at you know like and that's another thing like if you're doing targeted ads on Facebook, for example, like you can kind of you can target by you know, education level and by income, you know, or as much as, as much info as they have, you know, and I think that those things are, are important. Sure. And a lot of uh, conspiracy theory talk too was in that film, which was oh, fascinating. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's another, I totally so forgot about that. <laughs> Actually, yeah, the conspiracy theory, that'd be, and there's so many conspiracy theories. Right now, right. Like right now, if actually that would be, so right now is just, just uh, off the cuff like right, so, uh, uh, advice. Like you're, you, you want to do a little like drama movie, something like that. Have some character that's super into conspiracy theories and tie them directly into some stuff that's going on, and you will you will have people to push that. As long as you like, if you're doing something like that, like don't make fun of them. You know, don't exploit them. Like like even if you don't believe it or you think it's total bull, like let them have their voice, you know, that way, like that audience won't completely turn on you, you know? I mean, of course you do that within, you know, your own moral boundaries. Don't, you know, broadcast something that you don't, you know, believe in or you think is immoral. But if it's not, then, you know, go for it. Great. And last but not least, number one. Uh, yeah. The number one reason that the indie films don't make money is it's just not good. And, and I'm not saying that all indie films are not good here, but and I'm not saying that it's always the reason, but we have to be honest with ourselves when a, when a movie finishes, when we, like we finish it, it's in the can, we got it edited. How did it turn out? You know, like how far is this movie gonna go? You know, like how much effort do I put into it? And I'm not saying just abandon your movie and forget it if it doesn't turn out. Like I, I, I fully believe you should release everything you make. Like release it, put it out, you know? Um, even if you put it out under another name, put it out. You know, like I, I have never not finished a movie and I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of sympathy for people that finish something and don't put it out. You know, like like put, put it out. It, there's so much effort that went into it. And there are people, there are people that want it to be seen. Like get it out there. But I think what happens most of the time is filmmakers just don't have the the distance or the I don't know the maturity or you know hindsight to say hey you know this didn't turn out exactly how I wanted it you know so they they think it's their perfect baby but maybe it's not you know or 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 maybe it is good but it's just because you make a good movie or a fine enough movie it's not entitled to make money you know, like no, no platform owes you for it to perform. You know, the audience doesn't owe you to watch it. 
you have to you have to get them in and if you fail at that that's that's it it's not going to perform you know and sometimes i think a lot of movies come into the market and people haven't paid attention to the other four things and you know maybe technically the movie is fine you know like it like it looks good it's in focus it's got you know great good production value performances are okay but they ignored the audience they made their little personal film and it has it, it didn't deliver anything that an audience wants or needs and it it doesn't do well i think number one would be the toughest to really be honest about with yourself because you know there's kind of two camps of people one everything they do is amazing and two everything they do they think is crap yeah and i think both people are going to have a hard time seeing their film for what it is it is you're 100% right and i and i sat here and i just you know went on this whole spiel about it but i myself struggled with that for a long time you know i made you know when i made rise of the undead my first movie and i you know i'll say it right here the movie is not good you know and, but it it took me a few years to to be able to to see it you know, cause like I was always rationalizing it. Well, this is cool or this worked or, you know, and then, you know, it's not doing well, it's not resonating. I'm like, why, why, why? You know, it's eventually, I, I think about two years in, like of it being out, I was, you know, I was able to sit down and really say, you know what, this, this wasn't good. And then why wasn't it good? And honestly, like it, you know, it wasn't the, wasn't the image, it wasn't the sound, it wasn't the performances. I didn't spend enough time on the story and on the script. You know, we made that first movie and wrote that script to have something to shoot, you know? And two years later, when I'm like, why is this not great? I didn't spend enough time on the script. So after that, I became really immersed in like, like screenwriting and writing. And you know, for a long time, if you would ask me, I would say I'm a writer first and you know, then a director. And I think that's when my stuff started getting a little bit better. And this was in 2003? Yeah, that's when we shot it. We shot that in 2003. It came out in 2005. And uh, so it was probably like 2006 or seven where I was like, yeah, it's not so great. <laughs> and it, it took me about a year to edit that movie. It was my, my very first, I mean, I basically learned how to edit doing that movie. Jay, you had a great uh, question. We talked about in between takes. Yeah, I, so I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I was like, in today's in today's day and age, like, can we have, or could we have, like, a new filmmaker like like Quentin Tarantino, like in the '90s, that making that kind of cultural impact with an independent film, like the way Reservoir Dogs did. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and like racking my brain trying to even think of a movie in the last ten years that came out from an independent source and had that kind of cultural impact that launched a director like that, where even before Pulp Fiction, you know, like he was a rock star. Like, can we have that today? And I, I don't know. Cause like, I was thinking like the closest to it in the last like five years might be the Safdie brothers, but again, not like Tarantino. I mean, my mom knew Quentin Tarantino. You know, my mom didn't know the Safdie brothers. You know what I mean? It just, it, I think today with the proliferation of streaming and just all of the content and kind of, you know, our disposable society, whatever you want to say. But I, I, I don't know that a filmmaker, no matter how good, you could make a movie as good as Reservoir Dogs. There's definitely people that are as talented as him out there 
that you know are making their first movies, but can those movies have the kind of impact that something like that had, or that Slacker had, or that Clerks had? Can can we have that today? And I I, I would say no. It would be my my honest opinion is I I don't think so. I'm not. It's not impossible. Someone may totally come out and shock me this year, but I, I don't think so. It seems more that the way things are working now are like like the Safdie brothers, where like how many movies did they make before like we knew who they were? You know, a few, you know, and they, they built up to, you know, uh, hard, hard time or good time and, uh, and uh, uh, uncut gems they built, but they had like what, two or three movies before that? I thought so. Yeah, something, that, something like that. The Spirit Awards. And, yeah. and I, I think they might've been, were they like YouTubers or something before that? I, I don't know, I'm getting off. But, but what I'm saying is they didn't just come out with a movie that like, boom, here we are. Like, like, and who has in the last 10? I, I, I can't think of anybody. I'm sure people will in the comments, but I, I can't think of anyone. Right. And maybe because there are more people trying and also keep in mind, we have these influencers now hmm. and nothing against them, but people who just look good and are creative and do some really cool Instagram posts or whatever. That's also competing. I mean, we're just in this new realm where there's so many people competing for our attention. Yeah. Whereas at that time... The 90s. Yeah, well, and, and also, not only do we have more people doing it, there's more people doing it like on a professional level. Like even if they're not, even if they're just some YouTuber from Toledo, like they have a nice like 4K camera, they got their lights set up, like it looks like like a pro like TV broadcast from, from the 90s, you know? Whereas in the 90s, you know, like to, to make a movie look look as good, you know, and sound as good and play as good as Reservoir Dogs, it did. It cost about a million dollars where you could do that today for, you know, a couple hundred thousand, you know, maybe less. Sure. And we were getting our information from gatekeepers, for yep. lack of a better term. And we were going to Blockbuster and seeing maybe just a few copies of something versus um, Harry Met Sally on the wall. Nothing against Harry Met Sally. But oh, yeah. 20 copies of that and then, you know, a few of these indie titles that were harder to find. And so those were just, there was just a limited place for us to find them, limited amount of, you know, cameras weren't, you know, readily available like they are now. Yeah. So there might just be more Tarantinos, but maybe they're buried in the noise. Yeah, I, I think so, which, which brings up a, you know, a bigger point, you know, about distribution and how today it's, like it's never been easier to get distribution. It's just now there are so there's so much more content in the marketplace that the individual value of those movies has dropped. You know, so a movie like, you know, if you make a horror movie today at $50,000 and you made that exact same horror movie 5 years ago for $50,000, the 5 years ago one is going to be worth, you know, whatever 100 or 200,000 whereas the one today, no matter how it turns out is, you know, 75, a hundred, you know, it's just less, it's just worth less. You're making less, you know, like they talk a lot, people talk a lot about Amazon dropping rates, but it's, it's happened all over the, all over the place. You know, DVD is shrunk. We're not making as much on DVD deals. We're not getting MGs as much. We're making platforms, distributors, you know, buyers, they are paying less for movies than they were, you know, until you get into the the studio range. 
Sure. And so, and two, when there were these special films, let's say A Basketball Diaries, mm. they were so special because there weren't that many like them. Yeah. Now there's so many amazing films with Sundance and, and all these other festivals. You know, there's all these indie filmmakers. Making, so there's so much to compete. But when you had the one Basketball Diaries, then everybody could focus on that one. Yeah. And yeah, there were yeah. all these, you know, so I, I don't know if that's a, a relevant point, but. I think it is. Yeah, there's just so much. I mean, they say the same thing about, you know, the, the home recording uh, industry as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that talent is no longer attracted to independent film? I think there are a lot of things competing for attention with independent film now. And, and, and honestly, like independent film or indie film, it's such a like nebulous, like broad term and filmmaker is such, you know, a broad term, like, like is, you know, a YouTuber that's, you know, that's doing, you know, vlog videos, you know, with lights and a camera and sound, are they a filmmaker? Y yeah, you know, but yeah, I think that all of those things are like, they, it, there seems to be a lot of more easier routes to money now. You know, like people see the influencers, you know, like single camera vlogs or just, you know, on their phones and they're like, why go out and spend $30,000 to make this movie that might only make a few hundred dollars? You know, why don't I just get a camera and set it up and, you know, start doing YouTube videos? And, and some people are attracted to that. And I do think that like some people that might have, you know, like tried independent filmmaking, like, like narrative films or documentaries, might get sidetracked into that. Like, like I've admit me, I mean, I've made films for 20 years and you know, about five years ago, I started doing YouTube videos, you know? And for me, it's a, you know, it's an extra thing. But if I was starting out all over again, I, I, I might've started there. And you're offering value to people. You're not just quote unquote talking about yourself. You're giving yeah. them tips that could help save them down the line and interviewing people. Totally, totally. I mean, I've always, so at least in the last few years, I've been really focused, whether it's my movies or my YouTube channel. And, you know, it's my, I've, I've said it before, it's my mantra I, over and over. What value am I adding? What am I giving people that they need or want? You know, and I think that that has led, led me to doing better. Why is it hard to make money as a filmmaker? So today I think... Today, I think the easy answer to why it's hard to make money off movies is there's just so many of them. I mean, on one hand, you know, I love the democratization of filmmaking, you know, the way, you know, gear has gotten affordable, you know, cameras are more and more affordable. I mean, look at the Blackmagic 6K. I mean, you can get that now for what, like, uh, like 2,500 for the body. And I mean, that kind of technology would have cost you know, 90 grand 10 years ago you know, or 60 or something like that. It was crazy. And, and, and that is awesome. And there's all these people like, you know, we had the, the, you were reading the comment earlier and they're talking about how they made a movie in 97 and they had to spend $50,000 to make that movie. I guarantee you, you could make that exact same thing today not on 16 for $15,000 guarantee it. You know, I mean, well, almost. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that th that is super exciting and cool. But on the other hand, because everybody can make movies, everybody's making movies. And there's so it's so hard to get attention. It's so hard to get eyeballs on your individual project. 
because there's just so much more of it. And then, you know, and again, because there's so much more of it, so many more places to put it, the value of those individual projects is less now. And I think that is the main reason that it's harder today to make money on films than it was 10 years ago. What do most independent filmmakers get wrong about making money from their independent films? Um, I sound like a broken record with it, but I, I think the number one thing filmmakers get wrong is they don't think about the business. I, I, you know, and I'm not saying it has to be like all business and business first and then creative. No, you, like it, your movie has to be good. The creativity has to work. That's a given. So like I, I got some pushback on my channel early on because I was talking all about distribution and marketing. They're like, well, well, what if the movie is just not any good? You know, the movie has to be good. I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's a given. Your movie has to be good. That's like, duh. But what people don't put any focus on or don't want to, they don't want to think about the business. You know, and again, because so many more people are doing it, you have to be better and better at getting eyeballs on that project. Like you have to be able to, market yourself and not and not just your movie you have to be able to market yourself like there's a, there's a misconception i think with a lot of filmmakers where they think i'm going to do this great movie and it's just going to speak for itself and i'm not saying that that never happens still i'm sure it does but for the most part we have to get out there and become the face of it or somebody does like we have to sell it you know and we have to sell ourselves you know, like now it's not enough to be an independent filmmaker, make a couple of movies and just, you know, coast off of that. Let let the movies bring in all your income. You have to get out there and you have to you have to become oh man. I, I hate even saying this, but you have to become a brand, you know, like that's where it is. And, and if if that all sounds like disgusting to you and icky yuck, second, you need to second think being a being a filmmaker, a professional filmmaker today. And when I say professional filmmaker, again, I'm talking about filmmakers that are making money off the exhibition of their films. I'm not talking about DPs that are getting hired to do stuff. I'm not talking about gaffers that are hired to do stuff. I'm not talking about four paid directors. I'm talking about people that are, you're going to go out there and you're going to put the movie together as an entrepreneur and make money off of it. What if someone says though, cause we've, we've been talking about, you know, Kevin Smith, Spike Lee, uh, Richard Linklater um, and Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino. What if those are some interesting people? They're just interesting to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you just put them at a podium. I, I heard Kevin Smith speak at a, a conference and, and he's just fascinating. So, but not everybody's like that. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I, I think it's a matter of like leaning into your strengths, you know, like, like, like me, for example, I like I am not as charismatic as say like Kevin Smith or Quentin Tarantino, and like I'm not as knowledgeable about film as Quentin Tarantino, you know. And, and honestly, like like I sound like I'm pretty good on camera now, but mm -hmm. I've been I've been practicing this on my YouTube channel now for three years, you know. So like I, I'm decent now, but I had to work at it. I mean, at the very beginning, I was very, uh, 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 didn't know where to look, didn't know what to do with my hands. Am I gonna talk, am I talking with my hands too much? <laughs> like I, I was, I was and, and, and the whole time, you know, that imposter syndrome kicks in and you're like, 
nobody cares what I have to say. Like I'm talking about making $50,000 movies and making a modest living on it. Who cares about that? We all wanna be rock stars. We all wanna make a million dollars. Nobody's gonna listen to this. And, but I just, I just kept at it and building it. And then over time, you know, it built up a little bit and people started responding to it and it's, it's helped feed all of my other work and all of the effort that I put into getting better on camera and stuff like that. You know, I just did a crowdfunder and I did a pitch video and, you know, no, no ego. I think I did a really good pitch video. And 90% of that is me being able to present on camera better because I've, I've practiced it for three years, you know? And just as a quick side note, the amount raised was? Oh, we raised uh, $57,000 now. Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Indiegogo? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. What was the biggest mistake you made in attempting to make money from your films? Or was that the biggest mistake? That that was your end goal and that shouldn't have been and therefore that was the mistake? My biggest mistake making, I keep repeating the questions. <laughs> My biggest mistake uh, um, in not making money on early films was looking at it, waiting for someone else to, to do it for me. Whether, and I, this isn't an anti-distributor tirade or anything, because I, I, I distributors have their place. I like them, I still use distributors. But there's this thing with like new filmmakers where we just wanna make our movie and give it over to something, and then that thing is going to bring our money in, and we don't have to worry about it. It's somebody else's problem. It's somebody else's job to market it. It's somebody else's job to distribute it. It's somebody else's job to think about the audience, you know, and, 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 it's, and if you're making a movie at a certain level, it can be. But if you are making $50,000 movies or $20,000 movies, you don't have money in the budget to hire those people. So you have to do it. When eventually I came to the realization that like, I just have to do all these things. I have to learn it and I have to do it. And once I came to that realization and started working towards it, it's like it's like the world stopped fighting me, you know? If like before it was just like everything was fighting me. I would, you know, I was like I I need to go with this distributor cuz like they do marketing and they're going to do this this and that and it didn't work out. And then, you know, I did another one and it didn't work out. And I'm like, what, what am I doing wrong? I'm, I'm counting too much on others to make my dreams come true. You know, at a certain point, and I'm not saying to not collaborate or not to ask for help or not to seek out, you know, other people to help facilitate your success. But at the end of the day, it's like, you have, we have to do it for ourselves. Do you think that, and I'm going to sound a little classist here, but mm. comes under the uh, DIY sort of punk ethos or or working class filmmaker, whereas someone else, and again, people are going to come at me for this, but I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't do that. Someone else can do that for me. Yes, I, I think I think that's absolutely an element of it, and and I don't think it's always a like you know like the like a classist like oh I just like I'm too good for that. I think a lot of people are really scared of it. Like I like when it comes to marketing or like brand building, I think most filmmakers are scared of it. Mm -hmm. Like and and then and then they'll 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 twist that into you know like I'm too good for it or you okay. know or into anger or I shouldn't have to do that you know and they'll get mad. But 
you know, I, I, I think a lot of like, you know, bad behavior, like in filmmaking comes from anxiety and being scared and, it, and it's scary. It's a scary thing. You know, I, I, I suffer from pretty extreme social anxieties and I like every single movie I'm in, I'm an anxious wreck, you know, but I, I get, I get through it. But then on camera, you ease through it and and you're interesting to listen to and you have great tips yeah you know it's it's so it's so weird like i i was a uh so I, i've always been a super anxious person but like i've also always had like a performance bug you know like i you know really early on i wanted to be an actor or a singer i i was in a rock band right out of high school like i could i could get up right now and you know go to a karaoke karaoke bar and like like tear up some karaoke right <laughs> and wouldn't be nervous at all but you know say like i had to go do like a like a like a one-on-one -on -one, um like like ted talk or something like that where i'm that and i and i couldn't like write it out or have it you know like on teleprompter or something that would freak me out hmm. you know or like i have trouble as a producer it's a really it's a problem for me as a producer i have trouble like like calling people like you know like like reaching out like i'm looking for a location so this person owns a location i have trouble making that call mm -hmm. you know i i do it but i have but i have problems with it but i can go on camera and blah 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 but then i get nervous doing live streams you know like i get really nervous doing live streams what do you love about amazon prime i love that i love that amazon like you know, sometimes people think I suffer from Stockholm syndrome defending Amazon, but they opened up independent film distribution in a way that it has never in history been done. Like Amazon Prime made it possible for an independent filmmaker in Indiana making a $6,000 like backyard horror movie to distribute their film and have it on the new release wall, like right next to fast and furious you know that is cool and and initially it was paying pretty good i mean i i don't remember what the what the first rates were but i, I think it was like 15 or 20 cents an hour which some people say like, like that sounds low but you can make a lot of money at 20 cents an hour on a streaming platform on a platform like amazon where there's like whatever 90 million users watching you know, I, I, I think it was incredible. I think they made mistakes, um, you know, and I, I think the biggest mistake Amazon made was there was n no curation. Now, you know, I, I keep talking about how great it is that there was no gatekeeping or, you know, no curation, but I think there needed to be a base level of curation. Like they were taking anything. And things that weren't even movies like, you know, they, they were taking shorts. There were people putting up like YouTube style videos like and I, I think that all of that inappropriate content is what really like started the, the downfall of it. Some people will say that it was always planned, that they were always going to get rid of Indy and maybe they were. But I think it at least would have held on longer had they not been putting out youtube videos and you know there, there's a filmmaker that i know that was putting his stuff right from youtube onto there and you know calling them documentaries but they were not they're like vlogs like i do you know on there and i would never put that on amazon but i think that's what led led to it but 
I mean, like I owe a lot to Amazon. It, it, it opened up my eyes to what like independent filmmaking could be financially. And, and now it's kind of gone, but other things have popped in, you know, like Tubi. What are three tips a filmmaker new to Amazon Prime should know about getting their movie up there? Well, so three things people should know about Amazon. The fir first thing is that it's not what it was. So now if you are a filmmaker and you want to upload directly to Amazon, you cannot do it for subscription-based, the SVOD. The only thing that you can do is TVOD. And it, I think now you can do documentaries again, but for a while they weren't taking docs at all. But I think for TVOD now you can still submit, you know, narratives or documentaries. And you'll make, you know, I, I think they pay like 50% of the rental or the purchase price to you. So it sounds pretty good. And if you have if you have a title that, you know, has some legs, you know, that that is good, that might have some stars, you might do good with TVOD. But the first thing to know though is that you can't, you know, you can't just upload and be free with Prime anymore. You have to go through a distributor or an aggregator. And and they're pickier than they were. So like like, you know, some chintzy things are still getting up, but not not like it was before. So it's harder. Um then now, so let's say you're going through a distributor and aggregator and you get and you get up there. So what are some things that you need to know in order to do well there? I think filmmakers need to like wrap their heads around. I'm trying to, so what I, where I learned this from was doing YouTube. So when I started growing my YouTube channel, I started watching all these YouTube growth experts, right? People with, you know, three, 400,000 subscribers. And they're talking about, this is how we grew our business. And they start talking about looking at analytics. They start say, thinking about hooking the audience early and keeping them engaged and giving the audience what they need. And I started thinking about my features like that. You know, so like, you know, like now I would be much more hesitant to do like, you know, a movie that had an opening like slow burn 20 minutes. Like I, I would I, I would be hesitant to throw that up for something that's going to perform on a streaming platform, because in today's day and age, you know, they used to say like with screenplays, you have 10 pages like, you know, to hook the person. Not anymore. You got like you got like 60 seconds. Like, and if something is not happening that is going to engage the audience early on, they're out of there. So like you, you like you front, you got to front load some good stuff, you know? So I, I think about that. Um, and then I, I've talked about, um, you know, uh, like engaging in, in the algorithm. So, you know, when you're typing out your description and even if you're going through a distributor, nine times out of 10 filmmakers are still writing their own synopsises and stuff like that. So start thinking about that. That is your first like thing to start thinking about like SEO, you know, search engine optimization. So like using keywords and, and, and you want it and you need to be able to blend those keywords into your, you know, sentence and paragraph so it sounds organic and not clunky. But, you know, you're thinking like I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a horror movie with, you know, zombies and vampires, right? Zombies versus vampires. So like you want zombies in your description and in, in a couple of different ways you want like zombies undead um you know try to think try to think of like three different 
terms for like zombies and then try to think of maybe three terms for vampires and then try to find a way within that paragraph to work as many of those in as you can you know and because these like amazon there when people search like these keywords come up and they're they're matching you know audiences with their keywords so it's you know it's important so th think about that um and then um you know think about where you're gonna what what kind of movies like do better on amazon and amazon isn't a super like like indie indie friendly thing now so like if you are doing an indie film the indie films that are going to do better on amazon are going to be stuff that have a little more of a like like a mainstream feel like a little less niche you know or you know they have and no no extreme like violence or sex or drugs like you really gotta it's all it's really weird because i remember when i started i used to always say hey if you're gonna make a ten thousand dollar movie you might as well just go balls to the wall and throw it all out there and not worry about nothing this is the time to be punk rock not necessarily if you want to if you want to make any money off of them because you know and then now that uh, AVODs are starting to take off a lot more than the subscription-based platforms, you know, stuff like Tubi or IMDb TV or even YouTube. Now those, uh, you know, you're getting paid from the advertisers and the advertisers have to be matched with your stuff. So the advertisers that pay the best are usually more for a quadranty, you know? So like, you know, on YouTube, for example, you know, if you have a documentary about cannabis, you're not going to make anything because you're going to they're, they're going to 18 like restrict you and the you're going to have a really low CPM and you won't make much money. So you need to, you need to think about those things, too. But if you have a, a narrative about a dog that saves Christmas. Perfect. You're Perfect for Amazon. Christmas dog movie. <laughs> oh, man. You know, a, a friend of mine's actually doing a, a Christmas uh, pig movie right now. Oh, great. And it's doing very well on, oh, nice. on uh, YouTube, actually. Yeah. Very cool. What about um, cover art? Uh, most important thing uh, for the marketing of the film is the cover art. A lot, a lot of people will say trailer. Nope. Cover art. Because, like, in the, in the streaming, like, that is the thing that gets people to stop. It's the art. It is if you're going to spend money on something like for marketing, spend it on your cover art. Like if you're a decent graphic artist, but you can come up with, you know, a thousand or, you know, five thousand or whatever, pay the money and get a pro one sheet done if, if you can. You know, I, I so I'm a, I'm a decent graphic artist. And for my first probably year, like doing docs, I was just doing all my own. I was like, this is good enough. This is good enough. This is good enough. And then, you know, one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to hire somebody out. So, you know, I hired a graphic designer. I think I paid 600 bucks for it and it did way better than my average stuff. So then from then on, everyone, I put the money into it. How does the back end of distribution work? Let's say we have a movie that makes 100,000. How does that 100,000 get divided up? I mean, it really depends on the movie. Um, on, on most indies, like the way I structure most of my films, so let's say I'm bringing in investors. Um, I typically go investors first in, first out. So if an investor puts in $25,000, the first $25,000 the movie makes goes to the investor. Um, another way you could do that is you could say, 
the first uh, the first monies that come in up to that twenty five thousand, you split fifty fifty with the investor until the twenty five is paid off, and then once it's paid off, maybe their back end goes to like twenty percent or something like that. Um, but you know, as far as you know where it comes in, it, it, the, if you are not going through a distributor, like say you're doing Film Hub or self distribution, it pretty much goes directly from the platform to Film Hub. To you, you know, and like it's and it's all pretty like automatic and automated. Or if you're doing it yourself, like through Amazon, it's just Amazon and you, you know. But in today, like today, three years ago, I would have said do Amazon on your own and then do Film Hub, you know, for everything else. Today, I would say just let Film Hub do it all because you know the more that they have data for the more data points the more platforms you're going to be eligible for the more they have to work with to sell your film it's just i i just let them do it but wouldn't film nothing against film hub but wouldn't they be getting more of a cut cuz it's more of a middle person or no the the platform film hub is its own search and, and play no, no, no. They are getting. They are getting. So the like the way Film Hub works, um, it, they work just kind of like an aggregator. So it's like they they place the movie with Amazon, and then Amazon does whatever their split is with them, which might be fifty fifty, and then whatever Film Hub gets, you get eighty percent of what Film Hub does. So yeah, you are losing another piece there, but like you're just in today's. In today's age, I don't think there's a lot of value in just going for one platform. You know, so like maybe two years ago, Amazon was the highest playing platform, but there's like these 20 other ones. And once you add, start adding those up, they become comparable. You know, and you know, if you were not giving Film Hub Amazon, because like Amazon's like, it was like the first line of you know, defense. You know, it's like the first platform is the first thing they start getting numbers on. And the more your movie is doing, the more attractive it's going to be to other platforms. Whereas if you they didn't have those Amazon numbers, they just had all the little ones, your movie's not looking as attractive to other platforms. So they might not take it. You know, so and then the other thing that's happened is now Amazon started their own AVOD service, which is IMDB TV. Which is apparently, and it's still fairly new, but you know, word on the street anyway is it's going to be paying more than what Amazon was because like Avod's doing better these days. But you can't go to IMDb TV on your own, and if you just upload to Amazon on your own, you're unless your movie just does like exceptionally well, it'll never be eligible for IMDb TV. But like on through Film Hub or through a distributor, they can get there, you know. But you can't necessarily do it on your own, and having those Amazon numbers helps them to make helps gives you a better chance to do that. Where else does Film Hub upload your content? I mean, they have Film Hub has probably uh, like a hundred platforms they're working with. Like on their website, they have a list, and and it, it's all the the usual suspects. You know, the the Tubi, Amazon, uh, Hoopla, StreamGo Media. Um, you know, they have connections with, say, Apple TV. Like they just signed a deal with Apple TV. I just had my first movie selected for there, actually. Oh, Not sure what the returns are yet, but we'll see. And it's just, and it, and it grows. Like you remember, everybody's talking about how, like, how great Tubi is right now for independent film. Tubi has been around for, you know, I don't know, 10, over 10 years. And 
you know, five years ago, it, it wasn't that big a deal. You know, like you weren't making that much. And now that little platform that was there on Film Hub that I was making nothing off of is now where I make 80% of my revenue. You know, so who knows what the next one's going to be, you know, like, because eventually I think these things, you know, they bubble out, they burst, something else comes up. So what, what's going to be the next one? It might be Plex. Like right now on through Film Hub, you know, you're making pennies on Plex, but maybe five years from now, that'll be something substantial. And is it guaranteed that your film, if you do have Film Hub acquire it, is on all these platforms or maybe some of them can't be placed there? No, it's it's not. The, the only thing about Film Hub is none of it is guaranteed. Like you're not guaranteed to be on any platforms. You know, it's it's totally up to the platform whether they'll take you or not. But the cool thing about Film Hub and the reason I, I keep using them is that, you know, it's completely non-exclusive. So if Film Hub can't get my movie to Tubi, but I can get it through someone else, I can do that. You know, I have that freedom. Do you have the rights back to all your films? Um. I have the rights to most of them at this point. Um, I, I have been working with uh, Indie Rights uh, distributor over the past couple of years. So I think they have like five or six of my titles. Um, aside from those, I think I own everything at this. Oh, and uh, Death Day is with uh, ITN. How much would your movie have to make in order for you to get uh, 100000 back as a filmmaker on a platform? Oh, um... Wow, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure it varies from. Platform. Yeah, yeah, it would vary, but let's just say most of them do. Most of them are like 50-50 or 60-40 with the distributor or aggregator, and then maybe another 20% on top of that. So you'd be looking like at 100, 150. You'd need to make like like hundred between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and seventy five to make a hundred something like that. And that would be normally what span of time? Probably over several years. I mean, it, again, it really depends. So for for me, um, you know, I have about I have about sixty titles in the market that I see numbers from on a regular basis. And, you know, my titles make between, you know, as little as a few bucks a month, you know, all the way up to five or six thousand a month, you know, which so, you know, if I have one that's making five thousand a month, you know, you know, take a, a year to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I've seen numbers from other titles, you know, comparable budget levels to mine and even under that are making as much as, you know, 20,000 a month, or, you know, there's one uh, just, just this last month that I saw that did a hundred thousand dollars in a month, you know, now these are outliers, you know, I, I think my like general five to like few dollars, that's where, that's where most are living between $5 and like 5,000. And are there certain platforms where if it's not family friendly, don't even bother, like don't, don't waste your time, don't waste their time. Um, yes. Um, although to, to, to be honest, I, I don't know too many off the top of my head. I like, I'm starting to experiment a lot with putting titles up on YouTube because, you know, my, my channel's monetized and now a bunch of these, uh, networks have come out multi, multi-channel networks. I think they call them M MCNs and a lot of distributors are striping, striking deals with these different companies. So for example, uh, Indie Rights put out, uh, my, uh, UFO documentary, I want to believe, through a multi-channel network. And, you know, 
on their YouTube channel, it was making a couple hundred dollars a month, you know, not, not much on the, off of YouTube. And when they put it on that multi-channel thing, it did like, uh, like 2000 in a month oh, wow. just there, you know, but, but on YouTube, extreme stuff is not going to be matched with good advertisers. So it needs to be family friendly. Um, but you know, like something like, like Tubi, that's also advertising based, but they're a lot friendlier to like, you know, horror and, you know, more, uh, graphic content. So like, you know, like I'm seeing, I'm seeing really big numbers from Tubi on some pretty graphic stuff and it's AVOD. And I would assume IMDb TV is the same way. And UFOs not considered family friendly. No, no, no. The UFO one, it was, is, okay. was family friendly. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it just it just Aliens were fully yeah, clothed. yeah yeah okay. yeah they okay. were fully clothed there <laughs> they, there was no sex with them, but um, <laughs> but the the difference though was you know their their channel it just the multi network channel has millions of subscribers and they're specifically targeted for like supernatural stuff so like the only stuff on that channel uh, you know they have some documentary and some narrative and it's all like UFO paranormal based mm -hmm. so they've they've really got their audience. Um, speaking of indie rights, there's a filmmaker that works with them named uh, Al Prophet, and he does like uh, true crime like documentaries, very low budget stuff. And I mean, he's got a huge YouTube channel and he makes a ton of money off that. His movies then like double dip uh, through indie rights through, you know, Tubi and Amazon. He's making more money there. And he's like, he's really... Like that, that's the guy where I started looking at the documentary thing as like a viable option. And he's he like, he's, he's really got it on lock. Wow, so true crime, but I would imagine some are graphic. Yeah, it's like, and, and it's a kind of a specific like true crime too. Like his tend to deal more with like, like drugs, like, you know, like, a, you know, cocaine or heroin. They talk, like he had a, he had an Al Capone documentary, oh, wow. like stuff like that. What's the fastest you've ever made a feature film? So the fastest I've ever shot a feature film is in a day. Um, I made of, I've made one, two, three, I did three one day features and one two day feature. So I was working for a company, I was directing movies for them and um, I did about 10, 10 or 11 projects for this company and their budgets were typically between like 65,000 down to as low as 30. 25 or 30. And we would typically shoot these in like five to eight days. So um, they had a filmmaker friend that was doing these like filmed plays in Atlanta, like basically setting up three cameras and just shooting the plays and then they would kind of release it as a feature. And I was talking to him one day um, and we were talking about that thing and I'm looking at it and I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an editor and I was sitting here thinking about it and I was like, God, if, if we had the sets, real sets, like, like I could, I could do this and make it like a real movie, like not like a filmed play, like do it with coverage. I could, I could make this work. And so, uh, he was like, and, and he started thinking about it. And so like their big thing was they would get like, you know, a, uh, you know, kind of a fallen, like, like B actor, they would put them in the movie, you know, just like those, like Bruce Willis things where he's in the movie for like five minutes and it's like starring Bruce Willis. So like they were doing that kind of thing. And, but they were like, gosh, though, if we did this in like one day, we can just meet this person's day rate and they can be in the entire movie. They could really legitimately star in it and we can get a few of them. So they're like, yeah, we're going to cast like this person, this person, this person, we're going to do it in a day. 
So I would uh, basically, we would run these things. We would do them on sound stages, so like sets. And there would need to be like all the company moves would need to be within that sound stage. So, you know, like, like cafe, they have a cafe, they have a bar, they have an apartment. Okay, it's gotta be in a cafe, a bar, an apartment. So then, you know, we would set up the three cameras and, you know, I would do, you know, kind of a basic wide shot. Um, I do a, you know, like a, maybe a, like a two over here and maybe a, maybe three people over on here. One piece of cover, three pieces of coverage, run the, run the scene. So, and then we, we do the scene once or twice, you know, till we get all the way through it, you know, and then move the cameras and, you know, like start punching in on people and do this may on an, on average, uh, two times per scene. So you'd have six pieces of coverage for every scene, you know, sometimes more depending on how short or long the scene was. And, you know, like on that second one, you know, I'd have good operators and, you know, like they would be fishing close-ups and then, you know, in between takes, they'd be popping inserts. And, and we did it. We shot like 85 pages in a day and just, just knocked them out. And we did, there was one month with those, with that company where I shot four movies, like in a month, we did a, a five day, um, two one days and a two day and just bam. And then, and then, you know, I'd have three or four weeks to edit them. So does the talent know that they're getting their day rate, but then they're like in every scene? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Cause I, you know, on, on indie films, it's almost all about all the negotiations with talent are usually based upon time on set, you know? So like now I was not privy to those negotiations. So maybe there were some bumps because they were all the way through it. I like, I don't know. I didn't, I, I wasn't a producer. But I would assume, though, that they were pretty much getting their day rates. How is that on the actor, especially for these, you know, shooting a feature in one one day? <laughs> so it, it can be very hard on the actors and, and the director and the crew. Um, it takes a very, you know, and th this isn't just one day features either. When you're making an extremely like low budget short shoot movie, whether it's one day or five days or 10 days, they, there's specific types of actors that can deal with that kind of situation, and there's some that can't. And it's not necessarily a matter of talent or ability. Some just can't work under those circumstances. So one of the, it wasn't one of the one days, but it was like, it was a five day feature we were working on. And one of the actors uh, was a name actor and they could not handle the, the pace. And, and, you know, nothing like they were, it was a very good, talented, experienced actor, but you know, they kind of broke down halfway through the first day and like took me aside and like just tears streaming. Like, I, like I, I can't, I can't do this. I can't get to where you need to me to go. Like they couldn't, they just couldn't do it. So they ended up having to, you know, find someone else to do that part. Um, and that's the only time that ever happened to me, but it, but it's a very specific, like, you know, type of actor can, can do that. So like when I'm, when I'm casting a, a movie, one of the, a, a, a low budget, you know, quick schedule movie, like I look at their experience. Have they shot other movies like this? Do they understand what this set is going to be like? Do they understand that this is going to be like, bam, 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 you know, that you're only going to get, 
you know, even on the five day features, you know, you're going to get an average of three takes, two and a half, maybe, you know, it's, it's, and some actors can't get there in three takes, you know, like they, they need more. You know, they they need a longer rehearsal period, or you know, like we even on the one days we do camera rehearsals, but they're 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 quick, you know. So it, it's not like like long blocking rehearsal or long camera rehearsal. And if you're in the same space, sometimes the camera rehearsals start getting eighty sixed, and you're just you're just rolling through it, and they 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 have to do it. So it's it's there's some people that thrive on that, like. I used to describe shooting features really fast as kind of like shot clock pool. You know, it's like you don't really have time to like line up and, you know, agonize over the shot. You just take it. You just take it, take it, take it, you know, and I personally like I, I, I thrive off of that. Like I like that. I like the challenge. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't shoot a one day feature again, like like ever. You know, I did them. I, you know, I'm happy I did it, but I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> they're not the best movies that I ever made, but they're better than you would think, you know. Um, but anyway, I, I like the I do like the challenge of it. And in a situation like that, is there a place for the main actors to go to collect themselves or they're all in one space? Wardrobes here. Everybody's just out in the open together. Yeah, no, no, no. It's like uh, like they would typically these would typically be like regular sound stages. So you know there'd be green rooms and holding and you know and I have been on sets where you know you know like you're on a practical set and there there basically is no holding. I mean I did a I did a talking dog movie once and you know we had some named talent and you know they're like okay we have to have this room set aside for them you know because you know in their writer or whatever. But I, I forget what happened. But they like didn't have the room and the the person was like totally cool. But here, here was this like like person that you'd seen in all of these movies like growing up, and they're they're sitting there like on the floor oh, in a no. corner between takes. But oh. they but they're totally down, and you know, I think that even like name actors when they're working on something like that, they like they know what they're getting into, you know, or they should. And honestly, I think like with that. As long as you are communicative and you don't like promise something that it's not and you're really upfront about, hey, this is what this is and like this is how it's going to work and we're going to do our best to make you comfortable, but you know, this is the situation, most of them will roll with it, you know. And and if you get a little, you know, pushback or, you know, like hesitation, go to somebody else. You know. Sure. And sometimes they might be fine, but uh, you know, an extra or 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 another smaller actor may want to go and talk to them yeah. and during downtime and that's kind of their time to replenish and then they don't really totally. they're always on you know mm -hmm. so i think and, that could be a problem and i found like even in those cases like those practical locations we still try to find like even if it's not their official like you know room we try to find space to where they can be or and it doesn't have to be name actors even like i you know the movie i'm getting ready to do now we have a lead actor and he's very good and like he needs like like yeah. he needs about he, he said he needs like two minutes you know uh before each like new setup that like he needs to be alone and not messed with you know and that that's that's totally a valid process sure you know it's just sometimes on independent like really really indie films you you have to make some concessions you know and sometimes like you just you can't cast that actor you know 
not like in in this case i'm able to make it work but you know on another movie maybe maybe i wouldn't and i would look for someone that that's why whenever i'm casting too like in auditions i always ask people like how do you like to be directed like how do you like to work and you can start getting an idea like hey are we going to jive is this person going to be able to handle the rigors of you know a twenty thousand dollar you know five day shoot why do you make movies for less than fifty thousand I think most people that make movies for less than 50,000 are making it just like me because that's 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 what we have to work with, you know, or that's what we can raise. I mean, I would uh, I would feel much more comfortable, like like as far as like production goes, working around 200,000 or 300,000. You know, making a $50,000 movie is tough no matter how you cut it, no matter what the scale of it is. Trying to pay people fair rates and like it, it's, it's next to impossible. So I make $50,000 movies for one because that's like that's the ceiling of what well close to the ceiling of what I can raise myself or pay for myself. You know, anything beyond that, it starts getting a little like hairier. You know, so and then as far as returns, like to be perfectly honest, I like I wouldn't feel 100 percent comfortable right now taking one hundred thousand dollars on a movie. I wouldn't be positive I could return that back. Fifty thousand for the right movie. I, I'm 80, 90 percent sure I can return that back or at least most of it. Hundred. I don't know. When you say the right movie, are we talking narrative? Are we talking documentary? I, I'm, it could be narrative or documentary. When I say right movie, I mean like you know the a, a, genre, a, pop, a genre that's doing well in the market, um, a you know a, a you know a scale that you know I think would work at that budget level. You know, for example, I'm getting ready to do a horror movie and it's called Craving. Uh, budgets right around you know fifty, sixty thousand. And you know it's a it's a siege picture. It takes place mostly in one location. Um, it has some incredible creature effects. And right now, as far as independent films go, independent horror movies, creature stuff is doing really well. And if your creature is good, like it, it can do really well. Like let's let's just say for example, the movie kind of turned out mediocre, but those monster things are all really good. Like that movie can still like, you know, make that budget back and then some based off the monster. It's almost like what name talent was to, you know, horror movies five years ago. You know, the monster becomes the name, you know. So if you think that a movie is over 50,000, then you realize I may have to take a producer's money and I don't want to add that stress I don't want to have to, I mean, that's a lot of stress on someone's shoulders to be accountable for that. Yeah. So so the 50,000 is a safe place for you because you know you can do that on your own? Yes. Yeah. And 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 also just to start thinking about it on a, on a back-end way, and you'll hear a lot of filmmakers say, hey, if you don't get paid up front, you're not going to get paid. And, you know, maybe if you're a DP or director for hire, that's true. But as an entrepreneurial producer, you're making, every, your back-end is everything. You know, so if I make if I have a fifty thousand dollar movie and say a producer comes to me tomorrow and they want to put in fifty thousand, so now it's a hundred thousand dollar movie, how much back end do I have to give to that producer? You know, at, they're putting in fifty percent of the budget, so let's just say for the sake of argument, you're going to have to give them you know half of the back end, you know, fifty percent, and how much more 
is that movie actually going to make in the market at 100,000 as opposed to 50? Is it enough that that 50% is worth it? Because I make my living off of my back end. So if I'm losing half of my back end, is the movie going to make more than 50% higher? You got to have, you got to think about stuff like that, you know? And, and in this particular case, like, unless, you know, I guess, I guess maybe at 50, maybe, maybe if I put in like a, like a, a bigger name actor, like if I put 25 of it and hired like Tony Todd or something like that, maybe that would help it. But I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, you know, I have a friend who just did a, did a horror movie a couple of years ago and had some two like pretty good, like, you know, like upper level, like B actors should have, the movie should have done gangbusters and it didn't, you know? So 50 is just, I, I think 50 is a safer bet. Right. And are these usually films that are shot in one location? No. Um, although like, so I did one called The Other Side um, back in 2014 and it had like maybe 12 locations, but like we shot a good chunk of it in this compound where, you know, it was like this person, they had a house and they had a garage and they had like an office. And, you know, we, we made like six locations out of that one, you know? And as far as like on independent stuff, people say this all the time, like, you know, make it a one location shoot, you know, like that's, that's the way to save all your budget. It's only going to save so much because a, a shoot day is a shoot day. Like a shoot day costs a production what a shoot day costs a production. Yes, you're going to lose some time if you're constantly company moving. But, you know, on an indie, on average, you know, you're spending, I don't know, five or six thousand a day. So as long as your company moves are, you know, uh, structured to where, you know, you're on one location for that whole day. And then maybe another location for another three days and then one day at another location, but you're not doing like midday company moves. It, it's, it, you're not going to save a ton of money on the single location, a little bit, but not, not a ton. Like you might on a six day shoot, you might, you might lose a half a day in the company moves that split across six days. So like, it's, it's really not that much, not much of a save. And for the $50,000 budget, are you typically the editor? Yes, yes. And the reason being, I, I'm not one of those people, like I have to edit everything, but you know, I've been editing now for 20 years. And you know, at $50,000, you know, you're gonna be able to pay an editor, you know, like five or six, you know, maybe 10,000 tops. Like, and I don't feel like I'm going to find an editor for $10,000 or $5,000 that's as good as me. Not to be egocentric about it, but I, I, it's totally a practical decision. If I, you know, if I had another $25,000 to, you know, pay a full post team, I would. But I don't, so I do it. Can we break down this $50,000 budget? Sure. And help us understand, like, where are you spending that money? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So... Like I'll do like a kind of a generic like like breakdown of a fifty thousand dollar movie. So I'll talk a little bit about craving because I'm just doing that now. So um, oh gosh, it's hard without it in front of me. But um, so yeah, probably about on craving ten thousand um went for a location 
uh, right off, right off the bat. We needed uh, like a warehouse space, uh, two to three thousand square feet, and we have to build a set. So you know we're gonna spend um, I can't say exactly how much on the rental, and then five thousand on the uh, the building of the the bar set, which is the main location. And then um, there's some money in lodging because uh, it looks like we're going to shoot in Palmdale. So I'm going to have to put people up there. Uh, and this, so, so this is all in California? So yeah, this one's going to be in California. So we're spending 10K on the location. Um, we're spending, it's a, it's a bigger cast than I typically work with. I think we're, I think we're 10 or 12 uh, like major roles in it. And so we're spending about $12,000 on cast, and that's not including name talent. You include the three name actors, and that's closer to 20. And then um, we're spending, we're, we, we're spending 5,000 on effects materials. And we've already, I'm not counting this as part of the 50, but we'd already spent almost uh, 10,000 on monster materials uh, prior to the crowdfunder. Um, and then, but we'll just, we'll just say the, the five. And so that puts us to like what, 35. And then we're spending about, let's see, three, 300 a day, 300 a day on catering and another 200 a day on crafty. Um, and then the rest of it's all in crew. And on crew, on like on indies now, I, you know, I start my base pay at 200 a day, nothing under, or I'm sorry, 211 a day. It's like uh, California, I think like minimum wage in 12 hours and ends up at 211, but then key positions get a little bit more. So like the DP might make 350 or 400 or sound might make more, but for the most part, right around that 211 mark. And we'll do this with a it'll, skeleton crew. You know, it'll be, it'll be a DP. She'll be, she'll be running her own camera, including focus. Um, there'll be uh, a secondary camera, and when the secondary camera is not in operation, that person's also like the the swing, so they're operator slash swing, and then uh, the third person's like the gaffer, and then um, and then there's a, uh, a DIT that's also our script supervisor, <laughs> and you know stuff like that. You know, um, they'll they'll be makeup, um, but it'll be one person hair and makeup and then our effects guy who does some makeup as well will augment some of that and tell me again i'm sorry how long a shoot is this so this one is 10 days i believe i'm still kind of scheduling it out the the bar which is the bulk of it is going to be six days and then um the exteriors and there's a few uh other locations like three or four days and this food that you're getting, it's from a restaurant or these are caterers coming? No, so like in this case, I'm I'm very lucky with this and the fact that my my niece is a professional caterer. Um, she lives in Indiana and my my she's gonna she's doing this one as a favor. So I'm basically flying her out oh, and nice. then like at, at three hundred dollars a day, she could make she could feed a twenty person crew, cast and crew, uh, two meals for like two hundred a day. Like she's really like, you know, we, we were the kind of poor that, you know, we would spend $20 and, you know, a family of five would eat for a week. Yeah. <laughs> and where is she making the food? Oh, she'll do it here.
So like, like she'll fly out um, like our kitchen in Canoga Park or um, we're also if we're shooting in Palmdale, um, you know, we're going to rent Airbnb. So we might have an Airbnb that's set up for the cooking and then, you know, we'll have the stuff moved into the set, which is like 10 minutes away. So post, you're basically spending almost nothing? On? Almost nothing. Okay. So what I, like on documentaries, I spend, I literally spend nothing. I, I do it all. Like I'm not an expert colorist, but I can, I can do it well enough. Uh, I'm real, I'm pretty darn good with sound design and mix. The only thing I can't really do myself is like five, a good 5.1, but I know several people to where I can get it done very affordably. So like on this movie, like, you know, I want it to be, it's a little bit higher profile than a lot of the docs that I do. So I will most likely hire a colorist and a, a sound mixer. And that money has not yet been raised. So like, you know, like I had the crowdfunding consultant for this and he said, you know, after you shoot the movie, you know, no sooner than June, we'll do a post production crowdfunder for it and he said we could expect you know uh, between 20 and 30 percent of what we raised before for post so we were looking at maybe 15 or 20,000 and not to jinx it but let's suppose you're out there and you need to go a day over let's I mean it's yeah. Palmdale oh, totally, totally. there could be totally. a hailstorm yeah, something could happen okay yeah, yeah so is there money in reserves or you know I can pull from here my own sources yes okay so the, there's not the like the way a lot of indies work is like you I don't have an official contingency in the budget but I have money from you know an outside source that I can go to if something like that were to happen you know, or even, you know, going a little bit deeper into my own pockets if I have to. But so you're yeah. prepared, a backup, I, yeah, sort of I'm prepared. rainy day fund, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So to speak. Okay, that's good. Can we talk about your two or three most successful movies and then in contrast, your two or three movies that weren't a success? Okay. We're, we're talking fi like financial? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I would say um, my, my most financially successful movie in my career um, was probably Edges of Darkness, um, which I did in 2008. Um, it made, I want to say, was it 96? It was 96,000 in the first quarter, like when it came out. This was in wow. 2008. So like in Anchor Bay was the US distributor. It got a huge DVD release. It was in like, like it was one of those titles at Blockbuster where, you know, like most indie titles, there'll be like like one, two, or three. This had like like rows. Oh, wow. You know, like rows six or seven, you know, and it was all over Hollywood video. And it, I don't think I'll, I probably won't ever have one that does like that good again. I'm, well, hopefully I will, but that one did really well, you know. And, um, and honestly, it was just, and I wasn't involved in the distribution or marketing of it because it was all through Anchor Bay and, you know, uh, Shoreline was our sales agent. Um, but I think uh, it, that came down to just it, it was the it was the right genre at the right time. It was like before Walking Dead or, or right at the beginning of Walking Dead. I can't remember which, but it was like like zombie stuff. And and I did the uh, the subgenre combining thing. So it was like zombies. It was a zombie apocalypse, but it was a story about like vampires trying to survive in the zombie apocalypse. You know, like zombies are eating all their food. So I think that that, that mishmash really helped it, you know, and it was also, a, it was a very diverse cast, you know, at a time when diverse casting wasn't happening that much at that level, 
you know, and um, it, that that did that did well. Um, in the documentaries, um, I did one uh, two years ago um, called uh, Alien Contactee, and you know, to, to be frank, you know, it's technically not one of my better documentaries. You know, it's mostly a single interview. Um, we had trouble with the sound. Um, it's not the best shot. I didn't have really good B-roll for it. But the the subject, the interviewee, he was so engaging and he has such a strong like following that wants and needs his information that it did really well. Like it was doing four or 5,000 a month, you know, for almost a year. And, and this is something that we made like literally for nothing, you know, like shot the interview with the guy. I think I edited it in like six or seven days, like really quick. And, you know, and I and didn't have much hope for it. I was kind of like, eh, you know, we'll see what it does. And it, it took off, you know. Sorry, who was the, the is he like an expert? Yeah, yeah. His name's uh, Luis, Dr. Luis Turi. Um, he's a he's a ast astrology guy, and um, he speaks. He he was he was an alien contactee. He was someone that's had, you know, experiences, you know, meeting or you know, seeing aliens, you know. And he has a uh, website where you know people sign up and they get his astrology stuff. And he has a pretty big following. So one thing, especially in the streaming world, if you have a subject or you know an actor that's going to gain or a influencer that's going to gain a lot of early momentum for your movie, that momentum can carry it to a bigger audience, you know, because they're basically training the algorithm who to show the movie to. So if you have a movie like Alien Contact T where this guy has, I think, I think he had like maybe 10,000 regular subscribers on his website, which isn't a huge number. But if you have, you know, five or 6,000 of them that watch that movie in the first week and they're all like perfectly targeted for him. So the algorithm is going to show it to more people like them. And that's how things, you know, go viral. And that, that it basically went, you know, like the Amazon equivalent of viral, you know, to, and did really well. Did And th that was one that ended up getting purged on Amazon. But then it later, it got picked back up later and started making money again, just not quite as much. And it stayed steady and it keeps getting on new platforms. It's doing well on YouTube, um, re really well. And then um, another one in the paranormal was the I Want to Believe. It was a, a UFO documentary. Um, we went to a UFO convention and just like like bum rushed the speakers. Like, hey, can we get you over in the corner and shoot an interview for 50 minutes? We had one guy that agreed to do like a two hour with us. And that was uh, Nick Pope, who he used to be the British, uh, um, shoot, I forget his title, uh, something in defense. Like, like his, he was basically like the British Molder. You know, and uh, from X Files, right. and he would. Uh, so he we interviewed him for two hours. So he was kind of the the you know the main part of it, and then we interviewed another six people for it. But it did all the interviews over the course of two days. Um, I think I spent I spent less than a month editing it. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe three weeks, and uh, and it was a lot of stock B roll, and you know then B roll from the convention. But it, but it turned out really well, and that community. Like I think was really hungry for a documentary that wasn't 
like all you know woo woo and uh exploitive it was just very like like brass tacks this is what ufology is this is why we believe in it and you know that th that that continues it was never one of those that just like took off and did you know five thousand in a month or nothing i think the most it ever made in the month was like maybe 1500 but it's been out for two years and it's it's stayed there like every month yeah and it, it's getting on new platforms it just it just kicked off on a new youtube channel and it's doing really well so like that continues to do great you know and then you know narrative wise you know the the company i was working for and again i like i don't have their books i just have their word for it but you know like the talking dog movie that that probably that probably outdid the edges of darkness maybe five or six hundred thousand and then the ones that didn't do so well what do so, you think was the difference hmm. so like rise of the undead my first one and trap that was my third movie both of those like I, I really made them in the dark, like uh, not thinking about audience or any of that. I'm just, this is the movie I'm going to make. I don't know who's going to watch it or where I'm just going to make it and, and try to find distribution. And, and I did, but neither of those movies did very well. You know, like, uh, you know, Rise of the Undead, you know, in the first iteration of that, we never, I didn't, I didn't see anything off of it. You know, the, it was a, we did the deal with York Entertainment, who was pretty notoriously not great back then, that they're not in business anymore. And uh, then Trap, I'm trying to remember who distributed Trap. I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't remember who distributed, but we, I didn't make much money from the, that one actually was only with a distributor for about a year. And then I talked them into releasing me from the contract and did self-distribution with it. Made a little bit. And that and Trap was so low budget that I think it actually did eventually make its budget back. It was like, I think we made it for five. But um, not, not that well. But the bigger one that really, and the one that pretty much made me almost quit filmmaking was uh, The Campus. Or uh, it's called Death Day now. ITN changed the title. So that just, that one kills me. Um, so we, we shot it in 2018 and, you know, I'd, I'd done all the other movies and I was basically trying to follow the business plan that like AMG, the company I worked for had laid out, you know, do a movie for around 50,000. You have these elements, you know, keep it low. And, you know, it was a, it was a single location horror movie. It had a mix of, zombies ghosts and uh 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 what do you call it a uh mm, um like stalker slasher movie you know it was it was a woman that was dying over and over and every time she died she would come back in a different like horror movie scenario you know a little death day but <laughs> which is why they happy death day which is why the distributor actually changed the title to death day to write off those coattails but anyway, we, we finished it off and what had happened was this was right. So we, we greenlit the movie like right as I was like Amazon was about at its peak, you know, and as this movie was greenlit when Amazon did their first like take it from whatever, 15 cents an hour to five cents an hour, like took it down and the, the market DVD, like it was already shrinking, but it shrank really crazy between like 2017 and 2018 like the market just wasn't there anymore not not like it was so the movie came out and i was 
I was projecting it at like, you know, like a minimum, it was going to make like, you know, 3000 a month, but I was expecting more like, you know, 20,000 a month came out. It made like $1,200 month one. It made uh, like a thousand dollars month two, 700 month three, it was down to four on month four. And then I was like, ah, and the other big problem was I initially, I did not go with distribution. I was like, I'm, I'm going to self-distribute this. I'm going to do the Amazon thing. And then I'll let film hub do the other things. So I, and I just done the Amazon and it just wasn't going. I was like, God, we're never going to make even close to the budget back. And I had all of these investors and, you know, people like talking about, Hey, we need our money back. So I got a little bit like desperate and like, Oh, I need to find a distributor for it. And at that point we'd already released it. So a lot of distributors won't touch it. So I found a sales agent that could make a deal with ITN and ITN would take it. So I did. And the sales agent deal, I just, I didn't do my due diligence. It wasn't a great deal. And we, like, I think the movie made around 30 grand in the first year and we never saw any of it. Oh, so I, I ended up uh, threatening some legal action against the sales agent. I got out of that deal and now my deal's directly with ITN. So I get the money directly from them, but that 30 was already gone and it had already done its two years. So it's like, now it makes, you know, about a thousand dollars or less a quarter. <laughs> You know, and, and that money will just, I, you know, I'll never be able to pay those people back unless I do it out of pocket, which I've kind of started to do. But yeah, and it was just, you know, I didn't, I, 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 my eye wasn't on the ball. You know, I was, I was distracted by some other things and other business stuff and it just, it didn't work out. Do you think you'll ever use a sales agent again? I would never use a sales agent again. Never. You know, and, and and I'm not saying that they're not good ones or whatnot, but I just think that the market has changed. The only reason I even went to that one in the first place was because I made a huge mistake off the bat. Like if you're if you're going to distribute a film, if you're going to self-distribute and you, that's what you're going to do, stick with it. Go all in, self-distribute. If you're going to do a distributor, stick with them, you know, like stop, you know, don't try to don't try to pull it midway, you know, unless something's drastically wrong. Like, like, honestly, if I just would have stayed the course with self-distribution, because I'm sorry, I said I was going to do Film Hub, but that, that's actually not 100% true because Film Hub, I wasn't really aware of it at that time. Like, I, or I was just becoming aware of it. So, like, if, if I just would have held on to that for a year and then done Film Hub and the other platforms and then it would have hit Tubi, and I don't know that I would have saw the whole budget back, but I would have saw a lot more than I did. But... You know, I, I made the mistake of, you know, getting desperate and going for the sales agent and the distributor. And I'm not 100% on the distributor either, but I just, you know, I, I, I did it out of desperation and it was a bad move. With the Alien documentary where you went to the convention, you said it was pulled off Amazon but then put back on. Mm -hmm. Was that because watch time was low or...? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, so, you know, Amazon has a thing they call a customer engagement ranking. And, you know, it's what they base how much they pay you now. And if your ranking is so uh, under a certain amount, there is a good chance you'll get purged. But the other thing that could happen with the purging is, you know, because people got to remember there aren't human beings like like watching all these movies. You know, there are algorithms, there are third parties that come in and they, they, they're they just scanning stuff. 
you know, like they're looking for certain, you know, key phrases or images that will spark something. And that's how red flags get sent up. So on the initial pass, something might get through that they don't like, you know, but maybe it'll get discovered, you know, or what they say is they're always looking at, you know, audience data. So if you have a movie up and, you know, a hundred people click on it to watch it and they click off within 15 or 20 seconds, chances are that's going to get, that's going to get yanked. You know, so I, I found on the few that I had purged that it was, it, it had a lot, it had more to do with audience retention is what, what I would say. But I've, I've heard other anecdotes about, you know, stuff got pulled because it was too, you know, the nudity was too extreme or the violence or, you know, it was political. I've, I've heard stuff like that too. But for me, it was always watch time. And to, and to figure out your retention on Amazon, it, it's, it's actually kind of easy because they, on their metrics, they have like your total amount of hours watched and then they'll have your total viewers. And if you just take the you know total time divided by the total viewers, they'll give you an average of how long they're watching it. You won't get the specific metrics, but you can get a ballpark. And if you have a if you have a 90 minute movie and you know your your average watch time is around 10 minutes, that's probably not great. We posted a poll on our YouTube channel community page with the question, do you trust film distributors? The poll received over 8,000 votes. 85% of those polled said they do not trust film distributors. How do you feel about the negative reputation surrounding distributors? So I, I'm going to be a little contrarian on this one. Um, I think there are bad predatory distributors out there. And I think there was a time when there was a lot more of them. But so I'm not saying that bad distributors don't exist, they're not out there, or there's not even a lot of them. There, maybe there's a lot of them. But I, I think that 80, I would say 80% of the negative chatter around filmmakers and distributors stems from filmmakers' misunderstanding of how distribution actually works and what the market will bear for their movie. Like I, I've seen filmmaker after filmmaker saying, this distributor ripped me off. They're lying to me. I know my movie made more than this. Then nine times out of 10, it didn't, you know, like it, it didn't like they're like a movie. Your movie's not entitled to make money in the market. You know, like it, some of them don't, you can have, you know, like death day, for example, like it's it's not the best movie in the world, but it is it, it's competent. It has all of the like sellable elements. It's all in focus. You know, it's it, it you know it's it 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 should have done better, but it didn't. And, and it wasn't like the distributor hiding numbers from me or anything. Is like it just didn't do well. And I think a lot of times it's easier for us to point the finger and say it's their fault or they're lying or they cheated than. The movie just didn't do well, you know, and I think that's what happens a lot of the time. And then the other thing is, you know, it's, it's just in contracts and, you know, a distributor is a business. They're looking to make money. So the first contract they give you, it's going to be boilerplate or it's going to be, you know, uh, skewed to favor them. You know, I have never I haven't worked with one distributor. Well, maybe one that wouldn't negotiate a contract. 
So like if, if you don't do your due diligence and don't realize that, hey, I made a $50,000 movie and a $30,000 sales cap is crazy. If, if you don't know that and you sign a $30,000 sales cap, it's kind of like, you know, I'm not saying it's all your fault, but you, you didn't, you signed a bad deal. You know, like you had the contract, you know, you should know that 30,000 on 50 is a, like, that's a bad deal. It's a red flag, you know, or, you know, these companies that are running around now trying to, trying to like have filmmakers sign 25 year contracts. Like that's, that's ridiculous in this day and age, you know? So like you should, if, and if you don't know that you need to educate yourself. So like, if you're going to go out and look for a distributor and, you know, know the points on the contract, educate yourself. You know, like there are, and the thing that makes me mad is like today there's no shortage of information out there about these distributors, you know, and the ones that are bad, that are really predatory, like you can, you can find it pretty quick. I mean, you can Google predatory distributor and, and these names will pop up, you know, like avoid them. It's so I, I, you know, there are situations like Distributor where like that was like straight up that no fault of the filmmakers like that happened. That was a horrible, like bad situation, you know, and there are distributors out there that are doing like really shady crap. And, you know, and again, and no fault of the filmmaker. But I would say more often than not, a lot of the negative things around them is, is it's just it's just not understanding distribution. And these boilerplate contracts, how many pages are they? I mean, they could be anywhere from, you know, I, I've seen some that are single pages, um, but I've seen others that are, you know, 10 or 12 pages. They are, and, and they're long, you know, and like, and I don't understand all the ins and outs of contracts, but, you know, I go to other producers that are more experienced if I'm dealing with a new distributor and I'll give it to them. Or, you know, and I know a lot of people are like, well, I can't afford a lawyer, but you know, you can, you can get a lawyer to look at a, an entertainment attorney to look at a contract for a few hundred dollars, you know, and I, and I know that sounds, you know, whatever, maybe that's uh, you know, like an entitled, like, Hey, a few hundred dollars, it's nothing. But if you're looking at making money on your movie, you have to, you have to take some of these safeguards. So if you don't know the distributor and don't have a relationship with them or don't know anybody that does, get out there and find somebody that does. Like it's really easy to track down other producers now. You can go on 9DB Pro, look up a distributor, click on 10 or 12 of the movies that they've distributed and start contacting producers. You know, and you know, some of them won't wanna to talk to you, some of them will bullshit you, but you talk to enough, you can get a lay of the land. And then have a lawyer look at the contract or somebody that you trust that has more experience than you and go from there. And when you did take a contract or contracts to an attorney, were there certain things that were eye-opening to you where you kind of thought, oh, yeah, this sounds fine. It's legalese for something, but I'm sure it's fine. And then they pointed out, ooh, this is actually a red flag. Um, Not not really. I, I mean, for me, I, I've, I've been fairly lucky with, with two exceptions, uh, with distributors. Um, and most of the things that I got back was just like, kind of just what I mentioned before, like, uh, one of them was like, this is too long a license term. Like they wanted 10 years and they're like, you know, you should get this down to no more than seven, probably five, you know, and, or they would say that 
their sales cap on this is $25,000. Uh, your movie was budgeted at 42. That's half of your budget. Like that's probably more than what, and, and, and honestly, if you're talking about lower end distributors, anybody that's trying to charge any more than 15,000 to me, that's a red flag. Like, because I, 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 you see it over and over. They, they, there's no way they're putting in, you know, thirty thousand dollars into promotion of those movies. You know, they make a one sheet, maybe a trailer. You know, every now and then, some of these distributors will really get behind like a single movie, and they might spend that. But I think most of the time they do not. So I just don't. I, Unless my movie was starting to get it over the hundred thousand dollar range, I wouldn't even consider a distributor with a with a sales cap over fifteen. Why do we often hear that filmmakers are not making money with their distributors? However, we often hear the other side from people who work in the business that you can make great money in distribution. So, I think some of it is. You know, grass is greener on the other side stuff. I think some of it is just like not true. Like I, I've talked to, you know, like I've talked to several, you know, dis distribution company owners over the past, you know, three or four years, like doing my channel and whatnot. And, you know, they, ha they have to present a sunny front. You know, like th things are good, you know, the movies are making money. But, you know, when you actually get into the nitty gritty and look at the numbers, overall, generally, the, like, they're not. So, you know, I, so I, th I think some of it is from that. And I think, and I think also, you know, usually, there's so many different levels of movies. And I think some of, the, some of the filmmakers aren't necessarily, like, at the same level that some of the distributors are that are, that are making more money. So like, say you hear, uh, I'm just gonna name a distributor off the top of my head. Somebody like uh, like Gravitas Ventures is saying, like we had a great year with, you know, and and, and maybe they did, but you know, they, they're representing, you know, over 2000 titles. So maybe they had luck with a certain type of movie and maybe your movie is not that type of movie. You know what I'm saying? So I, I think, I think it is such an individualized thing, film distribution, and it's so based on an individualized film. Like, you know, I, I've just sat here and talked for three hours about generalities, right? But it's all specific to the film and to the filmmaker. So, you know, like a company could be doing great overall, but your individual film might totally flop with them. And, and then, and the other thing with that, you know, people, you hear this all the time, filmmakers talk about, uh, you know, distributors like, oh, if I was with this distributor instead of that one, the movie would have done so much better. It, it wouldn't, you know, they're, they're all going to the same places. They're all getting to the same platforms. They're all doing the same basic amount of marketing or no marketing. You know, it's like, it's all the same. You know, like people ask me all the time, like, you know, what are you, because I do indie rights and film hub a lot, Wh which do you prefer, which is better? I mean, I've had I've had movies make more with one, movies make more with the other. It just it de it just depends on the movie, you know. And the, and that movie, you know, there's no way to tell for sure. But I, I'd make a thousand dollar bet that I want to believe would have made just about the same amount of money with Film Hub as it did with Indie Rights, 
or you know something that did really well with Film Hub, like Alien Contact Team, might have might have done the exact same thing with indie. Probably would have done the exact same thing with indie rights. In general, the movie is going to make the same. It's going to get in the same places. There's some distributors that have you know, like a few better connections, you know, maybe with this platform or that platform, maybe they'll get a slightly better deal or maybe this, maybe this company has a good relationship with Shudder and you're doing horror movies and maybe they, maybe they're good to go for, for that. But generally speaking, they're all getting to the same place. They're all making the same amount of money. So it comes down to who do you trust? Who is transparent? Who is going to pay you and who's going to pay you on time and who's not going to, you know, screw you over. And, you know, in my experience, you know, distributors like Indie Rights or distribution platforms like Film Hub, they are trustworthy, they're straight up, they're transparent. You know, to me, it's a no brainer. You know, like I, I, there are distributors out there that people would say like, well, you know, maybe, maybe your film would do better if you went to like Vision Films. And, and maybe it would but I, but i would say that the amount that i'm paying on sales fees and the extra stuff that they charge to do those extra things might not be worth the more money you're making would you say if someone can't afford an attorney that maybe distribution is not for them because they could end up hurting themselves severely mm. that's 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 a good that's a good point um i i would yeah i that's something to consider, but but again, I, you know, I, I've signed, I've signed a few contracts without ever going to an attorney, but like just talking to other producers or you know doing the IMDb thing and contacting other producers, and, and at the end of the day, you know, everything's a risk. Like it's 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 all a risk. Self distribution is a risk. Distribution is a risk. You know, doing it yourself, going it with them. It, it, like there's never a, you know, a sure thing. And there's never a, you, you just, you never know. At, at a certain point, like filmmaking, it's it's a trust fall. You know, at a certain point, you either jump in or or get out. You know, so, you know, like I, like I wouldn't go to a new distributor with craving. You know, like I wouldn't do it. You know, like there's too much on the line for it. And yeah, sure, maybe I would have, you know, a better chance to get to like Netflix or Hulu or something if I went with a bigger distributor. But distributor that maybe I haven't worked with, to me, it's just like it's not worth it. You know, and I know that's easy for me to say, having worked with different distributors and having choices. But, you know, I'm I'm telling you, and if people, if you, if you trust what I'm saying, like you know, like indie rights out there, they're, they are trustworthy, they'll get you on platforms, you'll get paid, you know, and they're, they're one, they're good, you know, and, and there are others, but like they're, they're the ones I would say that because I've had the most experience with.